Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 82, recorded on December 2nd, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. I cannot believe it's December already, but I can believe the news around Clear Linux. I won't spoil a prediction, but I think Clear Linux is going to turn a lot of heads, and I think they're just getting started. They caught my attention a few weeks ago when they announced KDE support, but now it seems they're trying to up the desktop effort, including a new installer and other goodies. Yeah, it's traditionally really been more for containers and, you know, cloud workloads, hasn't it? But I know that the team working on it use it as a desktop, and it used to be XFC. They made a transition to GNOME, which no idea why they did that. But um, it has been used as a desktop internally, but now they're making it a bit easier to actually try out with a live image that has got an installer in it. The installer's a little bit basic, shall we say. It's kind of Encurse's style but it is actually much easier than it used to be to get going on the desktop now. You do kind of wonder, right, if this is anything to do with Ike going back to the team. Ike used to be the lead developer for Solus. Um, now he's back working at Intel, working on Clear Linux. And here we see initiatives focused at the desktop, which was a line of work that Ike was in when he was working on Solus. I, it, seems, it seems like it's a possible connection to me. I don't know about that. This seems like the kind of thing that they must have been working on for a little while, and he's only just rejoined that team, hasn't he? So maybe he's had an influence there. But you're right about it being one to watch, Clear Linux, because if you look at the Pharonix benchmarks, you know, Michael loves doing his benchmarks over at Pharonix, <laughs> and Clear Linux seems to be up there if not winning, almost every time, doesn't it? Whether it's boot times or performance or whatever, it is a seriously solid distro, but it just doesn't seem to get much attention because I suppose it, it's not been that easy to install, but now it's that little bit easier. Maybe it will. Yeah. What I'm kind of getting at is it has that, that vibe to it that some projects get sometimes. When you can see there's a lot of potential, there's a clear industry sponsor behind it, Intel, that has a motivation for continuing to work on the project, and there is the groundwork for it to go big. And I hear so many complimentary things from the audience about Clear Linux anytime we talk about it. And when I go through the screenshots that Michael's dutifully put in the article that we'll link at linuxactionnews.com slash 82, what I see here is something that is early days, but competent and ready to use. It's, it's NCURSE's based, you know, it's text-based, but it's, you go through, you select your package groups, you use their new partitioning tool, which this is one of the new big features. To your point, Joe, I think they have been working on this for a while, and that's one of those things they've been working on for a while. It's all in there. If, if you've ever installed a Linux distribution before, you're going to be able to do this, even if you're not a command line pro. And that's just one little rough edge that over time they could make even nicer. They could replace that with a graphical installer, and they're introducing features like this desktop live image that clearly is trying to make it more accessible. Well, it sounds to me like you and Wes should have a look at this, install it on some hardware, and talk about it on LARP. Yeah, I think uh, it'll be coming to a Linux Unplugged soon. Will it work as a desktop? Uh, that's something I'll, I'm, I'm willing to give that a go for a little bit. I'll report my findings. Well, my pro tip for you is don't try and install it on a legacy boot machine because it needs EFI boot by the looks of things from my testing of it. <laughs> you know what? Coming from Intel, that doesn't surprise me. In fact, yeah, exactly. I, I think the clear Linux boot manager is supposed to be one of the things that's pretty great about it. 
obviously Intel want everyone to move over to <laughs> proper EFI boot, but I'm uh, they'll take my legacy boot from my cold dead hands, I'm afraid. <laughs> I've managed to build a system before they made that change, so uh, hopefully I'll get four or five years out of this and then just suck it up afterwards. You know what, Joey, it's not so bad. I've just I've I've just had to bite the bullet with my more recent systems, and it's not so bad. In fact, they boot up a little faster. It's actually kind of nice. Yeah, but I don't like all those extra partitions. <laughs> you are old school. <laughs> yeah, you and your XFCE. I do actually kind of agree with you there. I don't like it either. But I've just learned to, to live with it. I just go crazy now with my partitioning. Yeah. So speaking of Linux Unplugged then, you had Matthew Miller on last week talking about Fedora 31 and how that is fairly likely to be delayed by six months. Yeah, a proposal that they have out there right now is to say, let's essentially skip the 31 release cycle and spend that time retooling the distribution, reorganizing parts of how we do the release, and fixing some of the tools that have really grown over the years and make it hard to just spin off one particular edition of Fedora or something like that. And uh, the timing is precarious for multiple reasons. Yeah, this is IBM coming along and ruining it already. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, before the thing's even complete, they're already... Uh, <laughs> yeah, the deal hasn't actually gone through, and they're already... No, this is nothing to do with that. You think? Well... I don't know. I mean, the timing is... It does mean that by the time the next Fedora would be released, the acquisition would be final. I honestly don't think that that has got much to do with it. I think this has been looming for a very long time because you only have to listen to what Matthew said to you on Linux Unplugged. And you can hear that they've been collecting this technical debt for so long and it's taken them just a day to put the distro together, not even build the packages, just kind of um, compose, he calls it, where they pull all the packages together and make the image and everything. And that's just unsustainable. Yeah. They want to get that down to just a few hours. And you know, it sounds like they just need to get mm -hmm. their technical house in order. And maybe the IBM thing has got a slight influence over this, but I like to think that it's far more technical in nature and much less political. Something else that Matthew said was that this is really in service of a larger objective they set a while ago. And this is one of the ways they think they can accomplish that as a project. I, the timing's also just precarious because Gnome Shell is in a rapid state of improvement right now. And to miss a release cycle of Gnome Shell is tricky for a distribution that's supposed to be the Gnome Shell showcase. I think uh, they're going to have to solve that problem, maybe either via modularity in the software repository, flat packs. Snaps. I don't know how they're going to solve <laughs> yeah, it. But snaps, yeah, right. <laughs> wouldn't that be something? <laughs> Just for a laugh, Canonical ought to rush to get the GNOME 3 desktop all snapped up, and then uh, <laughs> Fedora users could give it a go. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a precarious time. But I'll tell you, my first reaction before I talked to Matthew was personally kind of just a little negative um, because I have this bias as a long-time sysadmin from, from days back that developers will often try to get, they'll get stuck. They'll get stuck on a really hard problem and they'll start obsessing over their tools. 
you know, what editor they're using, uh, their laptop, the monitor layout, the all of it. They'll just go, they'll just start going at their and open source developers do this too. And a lot of times, they'll stop and they'll decide, you know what, it's time to break this into a modular architecture with a client server architecture, or we need to rebuild our infrastructure, or we can't really complete this project until we have this new bug tracker in place. And as an open source consumer, it often feels like progress will all of a sudden halt on your favorite project while the project does like some sort of self-analysis and self-correction that ultimately is in service for the consumer, but as a consumer feels like it's sort of seems like navel gazing from the project standpoint. And so that was my initial reaction was, oh, no, we're going to get caught in another one of these tool spirals. But it was pretty clearly outlined in a problems document that they have on their wiki that they're trying to solve. And there's, there, is some, there is some serious technical debt in there. And I, it, when I read through that and after I talked to Matthew, uh, I kind of feel like it'd be good for the project, not only because they could solve some of these issues, but according to their own data, the last time they did this, when they switched to editions of Fedora back in like the 2021 release era, that became one of their most popular releases ever because people could run it for a year and they had patches and they loved it and they built servers on it and products on it. So Fedora 30 may end up being the most popular Fedora release ever. Well, it would make me more likely to use it if you had that extra support. And it seems that I'm not alone in thinking that because there was a proposal on the mailing list to kind of offshoot from the discussion of whether or not to delay 31. And that was... A discussion about well why don't we just move to an annual release cycle rather than every six months and for me that seems like a brilliant splitting of the difference between fedora as it stands now and the ubuntu lts's i kind of like the idea i do kind of like it and i kind of like where you're going with it too because you don't need uh, to solve the problems the same way we've always solved them there's lots of new ways to solve those problems including software modularity and flatpak i mean i know i just made a joke about those but you could just flat pack up Gnome Shell and deliver Gnome Shell as flat packs and have that on top of a stable Fedora 30 release or 31 release, especially if they go to a longer cadence. And if modularity would allow me to get deeper user land uh, or maybe even kernel repositories that are from newer versions or maybe even Rawhide, uh, we could really t- be talking business here. Now, as much as you and I might think this would be pretty great, this is probably not going anywhere. It's not even formally drafted as an actual proposal. It was really just kind of a discussion that kicked off on the mailing list. But I guess I do see why there is a fair amount of pushback. It would really change the way they've been doing things for a long time. I guess if I was going to see this go anyway, either, I would kind of like to see it go the other direction. Instead of like these big old static yearly dumps, um, why not something a little more closer to rolling? This is Fedora we're talking about here. Now, I know, like, Rawhide's not really in a suitable state to do this with, but what if it was kind of something closer to KDE Neon and it was a pretty stable Fedora base that didn't change much, new kernels, and you got fresh user land stuff? And then they would maybe rev the base, which would be the core, which would be what the cloud and server editions are based off of. You do that. That's the part you can rev once a year. And they've got DNF, the upgrade process, down so great that if you're not having to worry about having to upgrade all your user land and your lower-level stuff at the same time, it's going to be a lot cleaner, a lot simpler. That is a Fedora workstation I could kind of get excited about. 
I think you might be dreaming there because even though Fedora is known for being sort of cutting edge and everything, it's a major change you're talking about there that would take a lot of planning. And if they're in the middle of retooling the entire build process and everything, that is just a bridge too far, I think, right now. Maybe in a few years they could think about something like that. But again, Fedora seems to be working quite well as it is on a six-monthly cycle. It's not really for me, but I think that it has its target audience as it is. Hmm. And now with the modularity, I don't think you need to push that as far as you're talking about to make it useful. And it just doesn't feel broken, so it doesn't need to be fixed to me. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I just think it's going to be, again, it's just what I started this thing with. It's a it's a tricky time to be doing this because you've got CentOS out there that's also free. It's going to be based on RHEL 8 when that ships. You could flat pack and modular the crap out of that and make yourself a pretty nice up-to-date workstation that has like 10 years of support. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, where's Fedora going to fit in this future in a couple of years? If they don't, if they don't do something interesting and different, uh, um, I, I could, I could see a world where I'm sitting here on a ThinkPad, running CentOS 8, uh, subscribed to the latest GNOME and Userland applications, and I'm pretty happy, and I don't really change it. That that could be a future for me. It's a long shot, but it may be more likely than this being a Fedora workstation anytime soon. Well, would Red Hat slash IBM care? <laughs> Probably not. Everybody seems to want that developer market, that Sputnik market. You know, the, the XPS Sputnik uh, effort just hit their six-year anniversary, and I think it took a while, but just about the entire industry has recognized what they're doing over there at Dell. I mean, you've got Microsoft now shipping the Windows subsystem for Linux. Google has built in Linux into Chrome, including uh, full GUI applications as well as terminals. And uh, next Tuesday on Linux Unplugged, I'm going to have a chat with the ISH developer-ish. It is a Linux user land for iOS, a full-fledged Alpine Linux environment with a package manager, tools like YouTube DL and Ping and Traceroute, all on iOS. And this isn't just out of nowhere. It's because there is a market for this stuff, for the Sputniks, for the machines running Linux. There's a market for it. It's just a particular kind of market. And if IBM had any sense at all anymore, they'd be going after that market because those are the individuals that are building applications for that hybrid cloud that they want to own. Yeah, I've actually tried out that ish thing on an iPad that I borrowed, and it is rock solid. So yeah, look forward to listening to that. Yeah, I I just had to. I was like, I had to find out. Like, is was he a diehard Apple user trying to trying to, to dabble in Linux, or was he a diehard Linux user trying to get it on iOS? So I I had to call him up and I had a had a chat with him. I already recorded it, so it'll, I just I'm just gonna put it in the next episode of Linux Unplugged. All right, well, you mentioned Google there, and one thing that they have been pushing for the last few years is AMP, Accelerated Mobile Pages. And we reported on this a couple of months ago that they were looking to go for a new governance model, which would mean that they weren't as in charge of it and they'd make it more of a community effort. Well, that has now happened, and there are now a lot of companies involved in this officially. Yes, yes, this is good. I mean, the two key features we're seeing really become established is the governance models, the technical steering committee and the advisory committee. So you have the TSC and the AC. And these are the committees that Joe's talking about that are pretty well established uh, companies, uh, Acme, Cloudflare, Washington Post, Vox Media, 
um, several Google employees, eBay, 1-800-Flowers, it goes on. The list, the technical steering committee has uh, more Google members, uh, has three Google members, and then a few other from the rest of the industry like Microsoft and Twitter and Pinterest. I, However, I really don't get a sense that this is really much more independent from Google. In fact, when you look at the people that are organizing all of this and the people that are sort of organizing those committees and that are sort of at the top, they're all Google. It's all Google. I mean, I, I, I understand and appreciate that this is their baby and they've it's just moved out and it just got its first apartment and I'm sitting here <laughs> going like, well, but your folks are still paying for your car insurance. Like, what the hell, kid? Like, I get it, but it's we're not there yet, right? This is still early days. Well, the cynical person would say that they're just paying lip service to the complaints that the community had and that this is really just a boondoggle. It's not really them making any serious changes. Whereas the optimist might say that it is a good first step. It's a very solid first step. And it shows that they are serious about bringing the community into this thing and that that community involvement will expand over time. And Google's grip on it will get lighter and lighter until they are just one of many companies involved in it. I think the reality is probably somewhere in between those two but I probably lean a little bit more on the first one, to be honest. I'll give Google this. This is a good effort, and this is a little bit of a different tact than they normally take with their open source projects. I think this is this is going to serve them well, and if it if it is successful and it perhaps gets more adoption in the industry, I think Google's going to be happy with this, and they'll probably, like you say, let it essentially be run by the industry. I think if it's a failure and it really doesn't get them any more traction, they'll pivot. If this goes nowhere, I don't think Google's done with AMP. Oh, yeah. Well, it's been very successful for them. If you do virtually any Google search on a phone, you're going to hit an AMP page as one of the first results. Yeah, and for the most part, it's kind of a good end-user experience. That's the worst thing about it. It's like when I use it, I'm like, oh, that's that's not bad. (laughs) Yeah, there are some problems with it, but generally speaking, it is faster. And if you're on mobile data, then it's just a no-brainer, really. Yeah. Well, like we always say, I suppose, we'll see where this one goes. But chances are, if you are on a Nocino mobile phone, AMP's going to work for you. A, a, a what? A Nocino what, Joe? Yeah, is it Nocino? Is it Nakuno? I don't know. Yeah, don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Either way, it's a phone that has been announced and I suppose almost pre-announced, really, if that's even a thing. And it's going to be running Plasma Mobile. And that's pretty much all we know about it, apart from some of the hardware specs, which are modest, shall we say, but positive in the freedom dimension. I'm not familiar with this vendor, uh, and I'm not particularly excited about this hardware, but this does seem like a good feather in the cap for the Plasma Mobile project, which I think has had this really great rational approach to building for mobile for a while now. And maybe this will be the hardware, but it's getting there. Every time they have a shot on real hardware, they have a chance to try it out in production, in the real world, work out bugs. It's good for the project. Yeah, and I mentioned it's positive in the freedom dimension, and that's because it's got this IMX6 CPU with the Vivante Vivant GPU, which doesn't require blobs. You do need blobs to get LTE working, and so that's why we're not going to see that straight away. But this is kind of like what Purism are trying to do, but a little bit less ambitious, and therefore probably a little bit more likely to happen. So I'm I'm not massively excited about it because it's not like going to be this flagship super performant device with convergence and everything. But I think there is a market for a freedom 
respecting phone. And I think that people will put up with lower specs as long as it works reasonably well. Now, the problem that we have with this is it's all a bit vague at this point. I said pre-announced, which is kind of a nonsense term, but that's almost what we've got here because we don't really know what Plasma Mobile is going to be running on top of because that's just an interface. So we don't know, is it going to be Debian? Is it going to be, who knows? It's going to be some sort of Linux and probably some sort of GNU slash Linux. But it's it's very early days, so we just don't know really. But it's building a bit more hype and getting a bit more interest in Plasma Mobile which we thought we were going to have as a kind of first-class citizen on the Purism phone, the Librem 5, but now that's looking increasingly less likely and it's going to be all about the GNOME shell on there. So I think anything that shines a light on Plasma Mobile is good. But I spoke to Jonathan Riddle about this and he didn't know too much about it. And apparently uh, Nikuno, Nisuno, whatever, uh, not really putting many resources into it in terms of KDE, apart from giving the project some phones to hack on and stuff. So it's not like a major undertaking for them. But who knows? It's It feels like we're clutching at straws, doesn't it, with proper Linux on mobile at this point. But I just hope that we're wrong about that. I don't think there is a market for it. You say there's a market for it. I don't I don't think there is. I, mean, I guess it defines, unless... You want to define market as 200, 300,000 units a year. Well, if I could make a phone and sell two or 300,000 units, I'd be quite happy. But nobody can, right? That's the, that's the problem is n- no one can. To make a phone that is actually the quality of a phone, you have to have scale of manufacturing. And, yeah, true. And that's just even to get something that has halfway decent battery life and can make a phone call in the U.S., let alone anywhere else in the world. I, The thing is, is this is why I, I like projects like Uberports and like Plasma Mobile because I don't think there's enough market for one phone to sell so many copies that now all of a sudden one of these projects is funded and can develop a great free operating system for mobile. It's just never going to happen. They're not going to sell tens of millions. It probably would have to sell. Uh, It's just not going to happen. But there is a deep, deep market of used devices and even newer devices. And there will be... Market competitors that we haven't seen yet that have um, more flexibility that can be introduced. And these will be perfect candidates for these types of projects. I just can't, I can't see anyone who's going to be successful in trying to sell a, a phone to the free software crowd and, and be s- sustainable. I mean, if that was the case, then these, these uh, Lenovo's that are out there, you say they don't care about specs, but if that was the case, then these Lenovo's out there that are reflashing them with all free software would be selling like hotcakes. Um, I, I think they sell them in small batches at best. Yeah. Uh, if they get lucky, maybe they sell it to an organization or a school, but that's got to be their rare sale. It's really kind of, or the market's spoken. Like, they've decided, and it's not a product that they want. Unfortunately, I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm just saying it's the reality. Yeah, well, tell that to purism. I think it just did. all right we better move on then and this is definitely good news and there's no way that you can be cynical about this the linux foundation and the risk 5 foundation have announced a joint collaboration the risk 5 foundation is no slouch either it has 210 institutional academic and individual members from all around the world and this is any way you look at it got to be a good thing if it means we're going to get some risk 5 devices 
I don't know why I should care, to be honest with you, other than I think risk five is a good thing. Go risk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, well, kind of. But I think you should care because it adds legitimacy to risk five. Fair enough. I, I guess if I didn't mean to sound like it didn't, I mean, I, I just care because I want risk to be successful and I want them to have more legitimacy. But it's hard when you start talking about these bureaucratic layers joining up. It's kind of like, I don't really know what this means. Does this mean maybe more hardware providers will will get interested? Like, I don't know what it means. Like, I don't know why to care. Well, the Linux Foundation are good at the money side of things, let's just say. <laughs> yes, okay. And that has to be good because it potentially means that they could use their connections within the industry to push risk five and push more openness, therefore, and push back against x86 and ARM, which is locked down and uses loads of blobs. Well, I, I contacted someone at the Linux Foundation uh, who works there and asked them about this because I know they're a big risk five fan. And she told me that it is also going to be a part governance thing as well. And I don't know what that means, but there's apparently maybe some like community outreach and commu- you know, get togethers, maybe. Maybe that's working with hardware partners and, and, and managing that process. So the Linux Foundation's kind of known for doing that as well. So again, you can see where there is some, some nice overlap where RISC-V needed some help, the foundation, and uh, the Linux Foundation's set up to offer it. I hope this accelerates everything. Yeah, so do I. And time will tell, but I've got a feeling that it will be good ultimately. So let's end with, for me, the highlight of the Amazon event, reInvent, that they um, had going on this week. And you talked about this on TechSnap last week, so I don't think we need to go into too much detail, but Firecracker, the mini VMs, I think this is going to be huge. I think all the buzz is around two main things about Firecracker. Essentially, it's KVM-based VMs but with the low overhead of a container. So you're kind of getting your cake and you're kind of getting it to eat it too. Plus, the second thing is, it's a proper open source project up on GitHub and Amazon seems to be keen, although we'll see, but seems to be keen on working with the community to extend it. Now, the, the, the hot sauce of this particular meal is that a lot of the hard work that takes up resources and time is being done in a jailed process outside the VM. It does that work outside, and then it fires up what they're calling a micro VM on top of the Linux KVM system, which is a great virtualizer. And now you can have VMs spun up in like 155-ish milliseconds, a fraction of a second, which is one of the major advantage to containers. And when you start looking at services like AWS Lambda, which is a serverless service, which is ironic because, of course, behind the scenes, you're spinning up servers, but it's serverless. (laughs) (laughs) And, And the way they're executing those processes is with Firecracker now, actually put into production early before they announced it in Lambda, and they're able to spin up these VMs in seconds or less than seconds and fractions of seconds and uh, have the full isolation that a VM provides. One of the things that's going to make this massively successful is just the speed of it. Being able to spin up 150 user space applications per second per host, I mean, that is some serious stuff. And that's just today, right? That's early version on today's hardware. You take the project out a few years on even faster hardware, and some of the custom hardware that Amazon's working on right now, this is all x86-based, 
but they stated they're open to porting it to other architectures and it's an open source project. This could be going places. This could be like the next Docker, could also just be something that's really only used at Amazon. Only time will tell, Joe. Haha. <laughs> we need to have like a jingle for like, let's wait and see, because that's what's so often the case in these big open source projects. Yeah. I think that it will take off because they've open sourced it. They've not done their usual of just using loads of open source stuff. They've actually created it this time. And I think that it will spread out there because at least from the sounds of things, it is technically absolutely excellent and seems to be servicing that niche between VMs and containers. And I think people are going to be all over this. So I expect to see over the next couple of years, especially as they add support for ARM, I think it's just going to be massive. You know what Wes told me? Not to spoil TechSnap 391, but there's one bit in there. It's not one of the key bits that he told me that actually kind of blew my mind. This whole project really came out of Chrome OS. This was the virtual monitor for Chrome OS that they've extended to do this, which is, I don't know why, that just tickles me a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Google and Amazon working together, eh? Who would have thought it? Well, in a weird way, like they've given their cloud competitor, like perhaps its next best weapon. And they took it from a OS that was designed to supply a web browser as a desktop. And the whole thing's just, I just, I love free software and open source. This stuff's so great. You can't make it up, right? (laughs) Yep. Well, as always, you can stay up on all of the latest news by going to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And come join Joe and I at Linux Fest Northwest, April 26th and the 28th, 2019 at the Bellingham Technical College. I, I don't know. If enough of you show up, I think I can talk Joe into doing a live Linux Action News there at the Fest. Yeah, stranger things have happened. We'll have to see. But we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. See you later.